Hey guys, how's it going? Sunny D here. Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. On this episode, you're going to hear the continuation of our story time on Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, Apple Computer, went by a lot of different names. And we're going to get into the early life of Steve from his adolescent years, his high school years, his rebellion, his experimentation with drugs, his encounters. Um, with gurus and all kinds of other cool things from the early life of Steve Jobs. All things that were critical in really forming his uh, philosophy, um, forming the person that he is and the person that would go on to create one of the most iconic companies ever, Apple. So hopefully you guys are excited to learn some more about Steve and experience these formative years, the formation of a young Steve Jobs. Now let's get into the episode. All right, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good morning, good morning, good morning. We are now Live, live, live. It's time, it's time for story time this morning. Hopefully everybody's doing good. Hopefully you guys are feeling good. Hopefully you guys are um, ready to roll, ready to continue our journey. You're just getting on the live stream. Good morning, I'm your host, Sunny D. We're here, we're in exactly the right place. It's time for another episode of story time. And we're going to continue our journey that we started yesterday exploring one of my favorite companies, a company that I'm pretty sure a lot of you have connections with as well. And that company is Apple, formerly known as Apple Computers, formerly known as the Apple Computer Company. Um, now, it, now it's so cool, it just goes by Apple. You know, that's how you know you've made it, when you can drop all your second names, third names, when you can drop all your names and just go by one word, you know you've made it. Um, so we're gonna continue our journey discovering, exploring Apple, and today uh, we're gonna kind of focus on those formative years and, and learn and hear some of the stories of Steve's early days, his formative years, um, really what kind of made him, um, you know, who he, who he is, kind of his, how he developed that philosophy early on in his life, some of the early influences, some of the early victories. You know, I talked a lot about this yesterday in my opening about how perseverance in all of these stories and all of these companies and all of these people um, that we are studying and reading about together on Storytime, there's a huge part of perseverance in everybody's story and there's a huge part um, that that plays in their success and in their failures because there's always going to be you know a, a certain number I don't know if it's a exact number but there's going to be a number of attempts no one is swinging at the first ball that's thrown and hitting it you know out of the park if you were in any kind of sport or competition you know if you like you know I do hair so your first haircut 
you know, that you ever do isn't going to be the best haircut that you ever do. Most of the time, your first haircut that you ever do is actually one of the worst haircuts that you ever do because you're learning. But it's your ability to say, you know what, that wasn't the best, um, but it also wasn't the last because you get to do it again. You know, if your first attempt at your business, your first attempt at your haircutting, your first attempt at anything um, doesn't go great, you know, your first attempt at a color, your first attempt at, you know, whatever, it doesn't go great and you don't die, then the beautiful part about that is you get another chance, you get another opportunity to do it again. And through, you know, sharing these stories and reading about um, these different people and these different companies and businesses, that's one thing that hopefully you guys are, are taking away. That there are a lot of, you know, failures, missteps, tried it, didn't work, tried it, didn't work. But it's our ability as people to continue to do stuff, even though, you know, sometimes it even hurts, right? Think about, you know, you ever watch like skateboarders or, you know, gymnasts, I mean, they get tons of injuries trying to get down their moves and learn their routines. And no matter how many times they fall off, they have to get back up and they have to try again. And that's a big thing about um, the human spirit. And that's a big thing about what we all have to do. So I'm excited to share these stories with you. So if you guys are just joining, you're just hopping on, I would love for you to share the stream with your followers, invite some people. Um, we're going to get going here. And today we're going to be talking about really the making of Steve Jobs. And for a lot of everyone, almost I think in the world knows the name, but knowing more about who the person is because it's wiring. And the wiring that's going on in your brain, it happens at an early age. You know, and yesterday we talked about how Steve is, you know, was adopted. And he had a period of time where he thought, you know, he, he wasn't wanted. And then his parents reassured him, no, you are special. You were chosen. You know, you weren't, you know, abandoned. So that was a big, a big part of his early story and learning about um, how to accept that, you know. And then as he's going into um, life, you know, knowing, right, that somewhere out there, there were parents that he had um, that did give him up for adoption but that doesn't mean that he was cast out, you know? So if you've ever felt any kind of rejection before, uh, that's where Steve was. So if you wanna share the stream with people, we're gonna get started. And we're gonna talk about some of the early years and the book that I chose for uh, this series this week, we're reading it's the Steve Jobs Autobiography by Walter Isaacson, big book. It's like five inches thick, lots and lots of chapters, like 600 pages. So I've kind of went through and as I'm going back through, selected some of the, the highlights and stories that I thought were pretty interesting that I wanted to share with you guys. And these formative years, you know, when you think about somebody's beginning, when they're, when they're a kid, when they're learning how to do anything for the first time, they're learning about themselves. Think about when you were, you know, a kid and you were just learning about yourself and you know, trying to figure out like who you are and how you fit into the world. Um, that's something that all kids experience, you know, and that's something that people, adults experience. And you never, I mean, you may figure it out. You know, some people say, you know, maybe, 
in your 30s or 40s or 50s, oh, I finally feel like myself or I'm able to be myself. And then you see people 80, 90 years old that just say whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, but it takes time. And especially in those early years, there's a lot of discovery going on. And that's one of the big things that played a role, you know, in Steve's life in those early years in childhood, you know, as he was growing up and being adopted and, you know, now he's got his, his new parents, which were the jobs. And from an early age, you know, his teachers, his school, they kind of recognized, you know, there was, there was something a little bit different about Steve. Um, so we're going to start there. And uh, some of the testing he had early on, you know, in his life where they realized like he had a way of thinking, right? He had a way of, of learning and understanding that was different than some of the other kids that were in his class. So we'll take a look at um, some of those stories as we get going. So thanks for joining. If you're here on Facebook, whether you're watching on one of the Facebook pages, you're watching on Instagram, you're listening on the podcast, Twitter, wherever you're, however you're consuming this episode of Storytime. Thanks for being here. And I'm excited to share some of this, some of this with you. So we're going to pick up. So near the end of fourth grade, Mrs. Hill had jobs tested. I scored at the high school sophomore level, he recalled. Now that it was clear, not only to himself and his parents, but also to his teachers, that he was intellectually special, the school made the remarkable proposal that he skip two grades and go right into seventh. It would be the easiest way to keep him challenged and stimulated. His parents decided more sensibly to have him skip only one grade. The transition was wrenching. He was a socially awkward loner who found himself with kids a year older. Worse yet, the sixth grade was in a different school. Crediton Middle. It was only eight blocks from Montaloma Elementary, but in many ways, it was a world apart. Located in a neighborhood filled with ethnic gangs, fights were a daily occurrence, as were shakedowns in the bathrooms, wrote the Silicon Valley journalist Michael S. Malone. Knives were regularly brought to school as a show of macho. Around the time that jobs arrived, a group of students were jailed for a gang rape, and the bus of a neighboring school was destroyed after its team beat Crittenden's in a wrestling match. Jobs was often bullied and in the middle of seventh grade he gave his parents an ultimatum. I insisted they put me in a different school, he recalled. Financially, this was a tough demand. His parents were barely making ends meet, but by this point there was little doubt that they would eventually bend to his will. When they resisted, I told them, I would just quit going to school if I had to go back to Crittenden. So they researched where the best schools were and scraped together every dime and bought a house for $21,000 in a nicer district. So I'm gonna jump in here. Um, so the thing about education, and that's like something that I'm so passionate about, I really, I mean, I truly believe in the reason I became an educator, the reason, you know, I I love education is because I really believe it's the unlock. You know, so knowing that, you know, he's in the school and if those kinds of things are happening, you think the quality of education is probably not there. Um, so when choosing education, 
you know, over everything else. I mean, his parents had to make some tough decisions. And, you know, he's already seeing that. And he's, like, realizing, like, yeah, I'm not going to be a part of this school. Um, so that was a big thing for him to get into another school. And his teacher is recognizing that he has some talent. He had some talent. He had some gifts. And he was performing ahead of his time, you know, when it came to academia. Um, so that I thought it was, that was I thought that was pretty interesting. So we're gonna jump back in here. Um, so fast forward, you know, he goes makes it through school, goes through, you know, his elementary school. He's now you know in middle school because he got bumped up. Um, he's in there and he's performing, but he's also you know very inquisitive, and he's wanting to know um, about a lot of different things. And and his, when he gets into high school, you know, he get there's a period of time where. You know, he starts to explore and he's he finds out, you know, about drugs and LSD specifically. That's a mind altering drug. And he's kind of fascinated with it and he wants to know more about it. And so um, in, in his high school is when he starts to kind of play into that. So we're going to jump into high school. So that summer, that same summer between his sophomore and junior years at Homestead, Jobs began smoking marijuana. I got stoned for the first time that summer. I was 15 and then began using pot regularly. At one point, his father found some dope in his son's Fiat. What's this? He asked. Jobs coolly replied, that's marijuana. It was one of the few times in his life that he faced his father's anger. That was the only real fight I ever got in with my dad, he said. But his father again bent to his will. He wanted me to promise that I'd never use pot again. But I wouldn't promise. In fact, by his senior year, he was also dabbling in LSD and hash, as well as exploring the mind-bending effects of sleep deprivation. I was starting to get stoned a bit more. We would also drop acid occasionally, usually in fields or in cars. He also flowered intellectually during his last two years in high school and found himself at the intersection as he had begun to see it of those who were geekily immersed in electronics and those who were into literature and creative endeavors. I started to listen to music a whole lot and I started to read more outside of just science and technology. Shakespeare, Plato, I loved King Lear. His other favorites included Moby Dick and the poems of Dylan Thomas. I asked him why he related to King Lear and Captain Ahab, two of the most willful and driven characters in literature. But he didn't respond to the connection I was making, so I let it drop. When I was a senior, I had this phenomenal AP English class. The teacher was this guy who looked like Ernest Hemingway. He, just, he took a bunch of us snowshoeing in Yosemite. One course that Jobs took would become part of a Silicon Valley lore, the electronics class taught by John McCollum, a former Navy pilot who had a showman's flair for exciting his students with such tricks as firing up a Tesla coil, his little stockroom to which he would lend the key to pet students was crammed with transistors and other components he had scored. McCollum's classroom was in a shed-like building on the edge of the campus next to the parking lot. This is where it was, Jobs recalled as he peered in the window. And here next door is where the auto shop class used to be. The juxtaposition highlighted the shift from interest of his father's generation. 
Mr. McCullum felt that electronics class was the new auto shop. McCullum believed in military discipline and respect for authority. Jobs didn't. His aversion to authority was something he no longer tried to hide, and he affected an attitude that combined wiry and weird intensity with aloof rebelliousness. McCullum later said he was usually off in a corner doing something on his own and really didn't want to have much of anything to do with either me or the rest of the class. He never trusted Jobs with a key to the stockroom. One day Jobs needed a part that was not available, so he made a collect call to the manufacturer, Burroughs in Detroit, and he said he was designing a new product and wanted to test out the part. It arrived by air freight a few days later. When McCollum asked how he had gotten it, Jobs described with defiant pride the collect call and the tale he had told. I was furious, McCollum said. That was not the way I wanted my students to behave. Jobs' response was, I don't have the money for the phone call. They've got plenty of money. Jobs took McCollum's class for only one year rather than the three that it was offered. For one of his projects, he made a device with a photocell that would switch on a circuit when exposed to light, something any high school science student could have done. He was far more interested in playing with lasers, something he learned from his father. With a few friends, he created light shows for parties by bouncing lasers off mirrors that were attached to the speakers of his stereo system. Um, so he's in you know, this class and he's kind of getting inspired and along the way, you know, you're going to run into different people in your life. You know, mentors, I think back, you know, growing up and in, in having different people that pop in. And sometimes they pop in like this teacher that it just inspired him and kind of challenged him, uh, brought him into this world of electronics, let him kind of tinker and explore things. Um, it was only a year, but that had a profound impact on his life. And so he's kind of in the middle of this you know, kind of like in the artsy side of things, but also like in these, the technology, um, like in the electronics, wanting to play around and build things. And he's got that influences from his father. You know, his father was always, you know, fixing cars and doing a lot with his hands. So he had that influence. And then he runs into these teachers and he meets these people and he gets inspired, you know, to try other things. Uh, one of the key people uh, that he came across was another guy, another Steve, <clears throat> named Steve Wozniak. And Steve Wozniak becomes his co-founder. Together, they form the company Apple. So we're going to jump ahead. And um, Woz, how does he meet Woz? So Woz ends up coming to McCollum's class as well. And he's a graduate, but he still hangs around the shop and likes to tinker. So he meets um, Woz in McCollum's class. And they become friends and, you know, Waz, he's older than Steve. He's like five years older than Steve, but he comes back and hangs out and they start tinkering. And um, Waz, his dad was an engineer, like became like a rocket scientist. Um, so he's really influencing his son in the technology. And Waz is like an engineer himself. Like he's already building things and um, learning how to... Uh, put things together and really into it, really kind of geeking out. So that kind of part of Waz that you know Steve was attracted to, um, that that really kind of stoked that fire, and it got Steve even more interested because of uh, Wozniak's passion for it. So we're gonna jump ahead here. Um, so they meet 
in McCollum's class, and they start playing around with uh, different, you know, gadgets and building different things. And then, you know, Jobs, he's at Homestead High, and he's like talking with Waz on a regular, just about they're going to these electronics clubs and you know talking about different things and light shows and they like doing pranks. They like you know making things and mess around and kind of testing the limits of what they can do, what they can get away with legally. Uh, some borderline is like illegal stuff that they're doing. And so one of the stories, uh, Waz builds a bunch of different things. Um, one of the pranks that he does, another prank involved a pocket device. So Wozniak built, um, and it could emit TV signals. He would take it, he would take it to a room where a group of people were watching TV, such as in a dorm, and secretly press the button so that the screen would get fuzzy with static. When someone got up and whacked the TV set, Wozniak would let go of the button, and the picture would clear up. Once he had the unsuspecting viewers hopping up and down at his will, he would make things harder. He would keep the picture fuzzy until someone touched the antenna. Eventually, he would make people think they had to hold the antenna while standing on one foot or touching the top of the set. Years later, at a keynote presentation where he was having his own trouble getting a video to work, Jobs broke from his script and recounted the fun they had with the device. Waz would have it in his pocket and we'd go into the dorm where a bunch of folks would be like watching Star Trek and he'd screw up the TV and someone would go up and fix it and just as they had one foot off the ground he would turn it back on and then as they put their foot back on the ground he'd screw it up again. Contorting himself into a pretzel on stage, Jobs concluded to great laughter and within five minutes he would have someone like this. So that was just a little bit of, you know, Waz having fun with it. And then there's a story of the blue box. And this one's pretty cool. So the ultimate combination of pranks and electronics and the escapade that helped to create Apple was launched one Sunday afternoon when Wozniak read an article in Esquire that his mother had left for him on the kitchen table. It was September 1971 and he was about to drive off the next day to Berkeley, his third college. The story, Ron Rosenbaum's Secrets of the Little Blue Box, described how hackers and phone freakers had found ways to make long-distance calls for free by replicating the tones that routed signals on the AT&T network. Halfway through the article, I had to call my best friend, Steve Jobs, and read parts of this long article to him. Wozniak recalled, he knew that Jobs, then beginning his senior year, was one of the few people who would share his excitement. A hero of the piece was John Draper, a hacker known as Captain Crunch because he had discovered that the sound emitted by the toy whistle that came with the breakfast cereal was the same 2600 hertz tone used by the phone's network's call routing switches. It could fool the system into allowing a long distance call to go through without extra charges. The article revealed that other tones that served to route calls could be found in an issue of the Bell System Technical Journal, which AT&T immediately began asking libraries to pull from their shelves. As soon as Jobs got the call from Waz that Sunday afternoon, 
he knew they would have to get their hands on the technical journal right away. Waz, pick, Waz picked me up a few minutes later, and then we went to the library at SLAC, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, to see if we could find it. Jobs recounted. It was Sunday and the library was closed, but they knew how to get in through a door that was rarely locked. I remember that we were furiously digging through the stacks, and it was Waz who finally found the journal with all the frequencies. It, it was like, holy shit. And we opened it up and there it was. We kept saying to ourselves, it's real. Holy shit, it's real. It was all laid out, the tones, the frequencies, everything. Wozniak went to Sunnyvale Electronics before it closed that evening and bought the parts to make an analog tone generator. Jobs had built a frequency counter when he was part of the HP Explorers Club and they used it to calibrate the desired tones. With a dial, they could replicate and tape record the sounds specified in the article. By midnight, they were ready to test it. Unfortunately, the oscillators they used were not quite stable enough to replicate the right chirps to fool the phone company. We could see the instability using Steve's frequency counter, recalled Wozniak, and we just couldn't make it work. I had to leave for Berkeley the next morning, so we decided I would work on building a digital version once I got there. No one had ever created a digital version of a blue box, but Waz was made for the challenge. Using diodes and transistors from Radio Shack, and with the help of a music student in his dorm who had perfect pitch, he got it built before Thanksgiving. I have never designed a circuit I was prouder of, he said. I still think it was incredible. One night, Wozniak drove down from Berkeley to Job's house to try it. They attempted to call Wozniak's uncle in Los Angeles, but they got a wrong number. It didn't matter. Their device had worked. Hi, we're calling you for free. We're calling you for free, Wozniak shouted. The person on the other end was confused and annoyed. Jobs chimed in. We're calling from California, from California, with the blue box. This probably baffled the man even more since he was also in California. At first, the blue box was used for fun and pranks. The most daring of these was when they called the Vatican and Wozniak pretended to be Henry Kissinger wanting to speak to the Pope. We are at the summit meeting in Moscow and we need to talk to the Pope, Woz intoned. He was told that it was 5.30 a.m. and the Pope was sleeping. When he called back, he got a bishop who was supposed to serve as the translator, but they never actually got the Pope on the line. They realized that Waz wasn't Henry Kissinger, Jobs recalled. We were at a public phone booth. It was then that they reached an important milestone, one that would establish a pattern in their partnerships. Jobs came up with the idea that the blue box could be more than merely a hobby. They could build and sell them. I got together the rest of the components, like the casing and power supply and the keypads, and figured out how we would price it. Jobs said foreshadowing roles he would play when they founded Apple. The finished product was about the size of two decks of playing cards. The parts cost about $40, and Jobs decided they would sell it for $150. Following the lead of other phone freaks, such as Captain Crunch, they gave themselves handles. Wozniak became Berkeley Blue. Jobs was 
Oaf Tobark. They took the device to college dorms and gave demonstrations by attaching it to a phone and a speaker. While the potential customers watched, they would call the Ritz-Carlton in London or dial a joke service in Australia. We made a hundred or so blue boxes and sold almost all of them, Jobs recalled. The fun and profits came to an end at a Sunnyvale pizza parlor. Jobs and Wozniak were about to drive to Berkeley with a blue box they had just finished making. Jobs needed money and was eager to sell, so he pitched the device to some guys at the next table. They were interested, so Jobs went to a phone booth and demonstrated it with a call to Chicago. The prospect said they would go to their car for money. So he walked over to the car. Waz and me, and I've thought, and I've got the blue box in my hand. And the guy gets in, reaches under the seat, and pulls out a gun, Jobs recounted. He had never been that close to a gun and was terrified. So he's pointing the gun right at my stomach and he says, hand it over, brother. My mind raced. There was the car door here and I thought maybe I could slam it in his legs and we could run. But there was this high probability that he would shoot me. So I slowly handed it to him very carefully. It was a weird sort of robbery. The guy who took the blue box actually gave Jobs a phone number gave Jobs a phone number and said he would try to pay for it if it worked. <laughs> when Jobs later called the number, the guy said he couldn't figure out how to use it. So Jobs, in his felicitous way, convinced the guy to meet him in Wozniak at a public place. But they ended up deciding not to have another encounter with the gunman, even on the off chance they could get their $150. The partnership paved the way for what would be a bigger adventure together. If it hadn't been for the blue boxes, there wouldn't have been an apple, Jobs later reflected. I'm 100% sure of that. Waz and I learned how to work together, and we gained the confidence that we could solve technical problems and actually put something into production. They had created a device with a little circuit board that could control billions of dollars worth of infrastructure. You cannot believe how much confidence that gave us. Waz came to the same conclusion. It was probably a bad idea selling them, but it gave us a taste of what we could do with my engineering skills and his vision. The Blue Box Adventure established a template for a partnership that would soon be born. Wozniak would be the gentle wizard coming up with a neat invention that would have been that he would have been happy just to give away and Jobs would figure out how to make it user-friendly, put it together in a package, market it, and make a few bucks. So they've got their, um, their partnership foreman, right? So that's the, that's the young Steve there. That's with one of the first, uh, first Apple computers. So that's the dynamic. So you've got Steve Jobs, you got Steve Wozniak, they come together and Waz isn't really, you know, he's the, the tinkerer. He's really the builder. Um, he's not really the one that's going to be like the, the money, you know, the marketing, the selling. He doesn't really have those skills. Um, Steve can build some stuff, but he doesn't really have the brain of a Wozniak that just sees how things can come together. 
And so that really, that that's one of the coolest things because it was that little blue box that helped them basically steal long distance, you know, make long distance phone calls. And the tones, you know, the old phones, like you would, whenever you press a button, I mean, now we have like on cell phones, I don't even think it makes us, it actually, no, I think it does make a sound still. Have you ever put your phone on um, speaker and you press the numbers and you hear those different tones? Um, so those tones, being able to make a machine that could dial the tones and trick the phone and call long distance for free. I mean, at that time, we're talking in the early 70s. I mean, that's pretty advanced. And so that's the mindset um, that Steve Jobs, you know, has. He's like looking at this as, you know, that's cool. We made this gadget, but there may be a business here. And so his wheels are already turning. And Wozniak is just having fun because he's getting to do really cool stuff with electronics. So Steve finishes um, high school and then it's time to go to college. And he's looking at, you know, college as, you know, he's kind of, he has to go. It's not like he really necessarily wants to go, but he does. And remember his parents, that was one of the conditions of them being able to adopt him as they had to set aside a college account, a fund, and make sure that he goes to college. Because originally they only wanted to let him go to a, a couple that were college graduates but that couple backed out so he ends up with a family of high school barely one's a high school dropout um, and so the parents are like yeah we don't know about that but if you make sure he goes to college so he's kind of got to go to college as part of the deal and his parents have saved up all this money so he ends up going to college um, and he goes into a college called Reed so we're going to pick up at Reed College. 17 years earlier, Job's parents had made a pledge when they adopted him, he would go to college. So they had worked hard and saved dutifully for his college fund, which was modest but adequate by the time he graduated. But Job's becoming ever more willful did not make it easy. At first, he toyed with not going to college at all. I think I might have headed to New York if I didn't go to college, he recalled, musing on how different his world and perhaps all of ours might have been if he had chosen that path. When his parents pushed him to go to college, he responded in a passive-aggressive way. He did not consider state schools such as Berkeley, where Waz then was, despite the fact that they were more affordable. Nor did he look at Stanford just up the road and likely to offer a scholarship. The kids who went to Stanford, they already knew what they wanted to do, he said. They weren't really artistic. I wanted something that was more artistic and interesting. Instead, he insisted on applying only to Reed College, a private, a private liberal arts school in Portland, Oregon, that was one of the most expensive in the nation. He was visiting Waz at Berkeley when his father called to say an acceptance letter had arrived from Reed and he tried to talk Steve out of going there. So did his mother. It was far more than they could afford, they said. But their son responded with an ultimatum. If he couldn't go to Reed, he wouldn't go anywhere. They relented as usual. Reed had only 1,000 students, half the number at Homestead High. It was known for its free-spirited hippie lifestyle, which was combined somewhat uneasily with its rigorous academic standards and core curriculum. Five years earlier, 
Timothy Leary, the guru of psychedelic enlightenment, had sat cross-legged at the Reed College Commons while on his League for Spiritual Discovery, LSD, college tour, during which he exhorted his listeners, like every great religion of the past, we seek to find the divinity within. These ancient goals we define in the metaphor of the present. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Many of Reed's students took all three of those injunctions seriously. The dropout rate during the 1970s was more than one-third. When it came time for Jobs to matriculate in the fall of 1972, his parents drove him up to Portland, but in another small act of rebellion, he refused to let them come on campus. In fact, he refrained from even saying goodbye or thanks. He recounted that moment later with uncharacteristic regret. It's one of the things in life I really feel ashamed about. I was not very sensitive and I hurt their feelings. I shouldn't have. They had done so much to make sure I could go there, but I just didn't want them around. I didn't want anyone to know I had parents. I wanted to be like an orphan who had bummed around the country on trains and just arrived out of nowhere with no roots, no connections, and no background. Um, so that's that was a part of an interview that he gave where he kind of, you know, he felt felt a little bit bad about, you know, telling his parents, you know, like they drop them off, they bring them to school, they spend all this money and they're like, he's like, yeah, all right, beat it. <laughs> so he did regret that. A um, couple, couple interesting things that happened in college. He meets some pivotal people. Again, it's who those people are that come across your path. You never know where they're going to show up. You never know when they might show up. You never know um, sometimes why they show up, but I'll tell you what, they're going to show up. And so one of the key, key people that he meets is a guy named Robert Friedland. And at this point, you know, Jobs has a little bit of savvy, but he's still a little bit more of like that loner, um, kind of a recluse, not very outgoing. And when he meets Robert, Robert is um, the opposite of all that. You know, so a little bit about Robert. Robert was four years older than Jobs, but still an undergraduate. He was the son of an Auschwitz survivor who became a prosperous Chicago architect. He had originally gone to um, to Bowdoin, a liberal arts college in Maine, but while a sophomore, he was arrested for possession of 24,000 tablets of LSD worth $125,000. The local newspaper pictured him with shoulder-length, wavy blonde hair smiling at the photographers as he was led away. He was sentenced to two years at a federal prison in Virginia, from which he was paroled in 1972. That fall, he headed off to Reed, where he immediately ran for student body president, saying that he needed to clear his name from the miscarriage of justice he had suffered, and he won. Friedland had also heard of a guy named uh, Baba Ram Das. He's the author of a book called Be Here Now. So he gave a speech in Boston and, you know, like kind of Steve, Steve started getting into like a um, little bit of like meditation and Indian culture and enlightenment and experimenting with the drugs. And so Robert's all into, um, into that as well. And so now he shows up at the college and 
that he meets um, he meets Jobs there, and they have begin a relationship. And I think that was one that was a real pivotal one because before Robert comes into Steve's life, he's not as outgoing, he's not as um, charismatic, he doesn't like have those those sharpened kind of sense of social awareness of what's going on. He's more socially awkward. And Robert kind of almost not grooms him in a way, but I guess you could say mentors him without him maybe knowing that he was mentoring him. And, you know, Robert's like this, you know, center of attention and he's a, you know, he walks in a room and people just kind of know he's there, like he's captivating. And that, a lot of that rubbed off on Steve and Steve became... Um, more like that and he got that you know from Robert and they started going down they would go to this temple it was the Harry Krishna temple on the western edge of Portland and you know they would dance and sing songs and you know it was kind of like this spiritual like Steve was trying to find himself you know he was kind of going through this like spiritual uh, journey and learning a lot about himself and hearing about you know, India and hearing about um, enlightenment and, you know, yoga. And he starts experimenting with these different kinds of diets. And he's, you know, from eating only fruit and harvesting apples. And all this is kind of influencing, you know, his mind and what he's seeing happen. He's learning about monks and disciples, you know, from the Hare Krishna temple. And they, he becomes a vegetarian. He actually becomes a fruitarian as well for a while where he only eats fruit, which I thought was pretty interesting. And then he's, um, so he's hanging out, he's hanging out at this farm, but at the same time he's in Reed, he's in college, but he's getting super bored. And so he decides he's gonna drop out. So we're gonna pick back up there. So Jobs quickly became bored with college. He liked being at Reed, just not taking the required classes. In fact, he was surprised when he found out that for all of its hippie aura, there were strict course requirements. When Wozniak came to visit, Jobs waved his schedule at him and complained, they are making me take all these courses. Woz replied, yes, that's what they do in college. Jobs refused to go to the classes he was assigned and instead, went to the ones he wanted, such as a dance class where he could enjoy both the creativity and the chance to meet girls. I would have never have refused to take the courses you were supposed to. That's a difference in our personality, Wozniak marveled. Jobs also began to feel guilty, he later said, about spending so much of his parents' money on an education that did not seem worthwhile. All of my working class parents' savings were being spent on my college tuition, he recounted in a famous com commencement address at Stanford. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and no idea how college was going to help me figure it out. And here I was spending all of the money my parents had saved their entire life. So I decided to drop out and trust that it would all work out okay. He didn't actually want to leave Reed. He just wanted to quit paying tuition and taking classes that didn't interest him. Remarkably, Reed tolerated that. He had a very inquiring mind that was enormously attractive, said the Dean of Students, Jack Dudman. He refused to accept automatically received truths, and he wanted to examine everything himself. 
Dudman allowed Jobs to audit classes and stay with friends in the dorms even after he stopped paying tuition. <clears throat> the minute I dropped out, I could stop taking the required classes that didn't interest me and begin dropping in on the ones that looked interesting, he said. Among them was a calligraphy class that appealed to him after he saw posters on campus that were beautifully drawn. I learned about serif and sans-serif typefaces, about varying the amount of space between different letter combinations, about what makes great topography great. It was beautiful, historical, artistically subtle, in a way that science can't capture, and I found it fascinating. It was yet another example of Jobs consciously positioning himself at the intersection of the arts and technology. In all of his products, technology would be married to great design, elegance, human touches, and even romance. He would be in the fore of pushing friendly graphical user interfaces. The calligraphy course would become iconic in that regard. If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, the Mac would have never had multiple typefaces or proportionally spaced fonts. And since Windows just copied the Mac, it's likely that no personal computer would have them. In the meantime, Jobs eked out a bohemian existence on the fringes of Reed. He went barefoot most of the time, wearing sandals when it snowed. Elizabeth Holmes made meals for him, trying to keep up with his obsessive diets. He returned soda bottles for spare change, continued his treks to the free Sunday dinners at the Hare Krishna Temple and wore a down jacket in the heatless garage apartment he rented for $20 a month. When he needed money, he found work at the psychology department lab, maintaining the electronic equipment that was used for animal behavior experiments. Occasionally, Chris Ann Brennan would come to visit. Their relationship was sputtering, <clears throat> sputtered along erratically, but mostly he tended to the stirrings of his own soul and personal quest for enlightenment. I came of age at a magical time, he reflected later. Our consciousness was raised by Zen and also by LSD. Even later in life, he would credit psychedelic drugs for making him more enlightened. Taking LSD was a profound experience, one of the most important things in my life. LSD shows you that there's another side to the coin, and you can't remember it when it wears off, but you know it. It reinforced my sense of what was important creating great things instead of making money, putting things back into the stream of history and of human consciousness as much as I could. So we're gonna talk about one more piece of this puzzle, um, but you can kind of see like where things are start, his, you know, his philosophy is really starting to be developed. And you could see where the appreciation, like when you look at a, you know, an iPhone, when you look at one of Apple's products and, you know, one of the things that really uh, bothers me is like putting the case, but it's like, it's an expensive device. So we put these cases on it because we want to protect it. Um, but when you take the case off, which sometimes I do, like if I'm at home and you know, I don't think I'm going to smash my phone anywhere. I'll take the case off because I just love uh, the way that the phone feels without the case. 
and I'll try to find like I've got a few different you know phones I'm using right now I can't show you all of them but I'll like try to find you know cases that are almost are um, slimmer in design you know borderline you know maybe like invisible um, to an extent because I just love the way the phone feels and that came from Steve's appreciation of art and design and how something looks was just as important to him as how it works and that's something that you know he continues to push and push and his designers which you'll learn about later on in the story um, the designers that come into Apple can continue to push them and push them to make the design um, such a important part of it not just having the best microchips and having it you know work obviously it's supposed to work I mean everybody's got a phone and the phone works but when you have that mentality of a designer and having something be elegant and having even like romantic in a sense where you really do have a relationship with the device even if it's not you know you're not making a phone call it's like you think about it how what your relationship is with your Apple products is different than what it is probably with a lot of other products and that's because of these influences that he had and being able to drop out and then be able to jump back in there um, take those design classes um, that's a testament too to a lot of like education right now like when you get when you go in and into a school imagine if you could do like you know Steve did and he's like you know I don't want to take all these required classes I just want to take classes that I'm inspired by and if he wasn't able to do that you know Apple wouldn't be what it is today because those products the influencing um, that those classes had on him and those products that he was able to make and design because of that you know it I mean it changed it changed the whole game um, so he's dropping in and out you know going to these classes and we're gonna fast forward um, there's a company called Atari now you know for some of you guys I, I remember Atari I mean I'm not I'm not that old but I remember Atari it was like one of the very first video games back in the day um, but he ends up having a little um, interaction with this company and some really cool things happen um, it kind of charts the course so Atari this chapter here is, is called Atari and India. So Zen and the Art of Game Design. <clears throat> so in February 1974, after 18 months of hanging around Reed, Jobs decided to move back to his parents' home in Los Altos and look for a job. It was not a difficult search. At peak times during the 1970s, the classified section of the San Jose Mercury carried up to 60 pages of technology help wanted ads. One of those caught Jobs' eye. Have fun, make money, it said. That day, Jobs walked into the lobby of the video game manufacturer, Atari, and told the personnel director, who was startled by his unkempt hair and attire, that he wouldn't leave until they gave him a job. Atari's founder was a burly entrepreneur named Nolan Bushnell, who was a charismatic visionary with a nice touch of showmanship in him. In other words, another role model waiting to be emulated. After he became famous, he liked driving around in a Rolls smoking dope and holding staff meetings in a hot tub. As Friedland had done and as Jobs would learn to do, 
he was able to turn charm into a cunning force to cajole and intimidate and distort reality with the power of his personality. His chief engineer was Al Alcorn, beefy and jovial and a bit more grounded. The house grown up, trying to implement the vision and curb the enthusiasms of Bushnell. Their big hit thus far was a video game called Pong, in which two players tried to volley a blip on the screen with two movable lines that acted as paddles. If you're under 30, ask your parents. <laughs> so basically that game, and I've seen modern day versions of it, it's kind of like tennis. So it's got this, you know, these little lines that you move and it's got like this little, you know, it's like a, a ball, but they call it a blip. And you, your player one's over here, so then player two's here, and it's like bink, and then this person hits it and it just bounces and bounces and you gotta kind of move these and keep it bouncing so it doesn't go off, because if it goes off the screen, then you lose. So it's kind of like tennis. Um, so that was Atari's big hit. And so the mentorship, so now he meets this guy, another charismatic guy, and he's gonna have more influences on Steve as Steve's kind of looking. And when you're, you know, you're a young guy, you're coming out of college, you're, you know, out of high school, you're you're looking at other guys, you're like, how do you, you know, how do you act in certain situations? So all these people that you meet along the way help mold you. And that's really what Nolan becomes. Um, he becomes like a molder. Um, for Steve Jobs, another a molder for Steve Jobs. <clears throat> so he's in the lobby. He's like, I'm not leaving till I, you know, till I get a job. So he says he's not going to leave until we hire him. Should we call the cops or let him in? I said, bring him on in. Jobs thus began. And jo the Jobs thus became one of the first 50 employees at Atari, working as a technician for five dollars an hour. In retrospect, it was weird to hire a dropout from Reed. Alcorn recalled, but I saw something in him. He was very intelligent, enthusiastic, excited about tech. Alcorn assigned him to work with a straight-laced engineer named Don Lang. The next day, Lang complained, this guy's a goddamn hippie with body odor. Why did you do this to me? <laughs> and he's impossible to deal with. Jobs clung to the belief that his fruit-heavy vegetarian diet would prevent not just mucus, but also body odor, even if he didn't use deodorant or shower regularly. It was a flawed theory. So he's at this job and like Jobs is coming in smelling like hell, like you need to take a shower, man. So this guy's like, why do you got him working with me? Um, so Lang and others wanted to let Jobs go, but Bushnell worked out a solution. The smell and behavior wasn't an issue with me, he said. Steve was prickly, but I kind of liked him. So I asked him to go on the night shift. It was a way to save him. Jobs would come in after Lang and others had left and work through most of the night. Even thus isolated, he became known for his brashness. One of those occasions when he happened to interact with others, he was prone to informing them that they were dumb shits. In retrospect, he stands by that judgment. The only reason I shown was that everyone else was so bad. Jobs recalled, despite his arrogance or perhaps because of it, he was able to charm Atari's boss. He was more philosophical than the other people I worked with, Bushnell recalled. We used to discuss free will versus determinism. I tended to believe that things were much more determined that we were programmed. If we had perfect, if we had perfect information, 
We could predict people's actions. Steve felt the opposite. That outlook accorded with his faith in the power of the will to bend reality. Jobs helped me improve some of the games by pushing the chips, by pushing the chips to produce fun designs. And Bushnell's inspiring willingness to play by his own rules rubbed off on him. In addition, he intuitively appreciated the simplicity of Atari's games. They came with no manual, needed to be uncomplicated enough that a stoned freshman could figure them out. The only instructions the Atari's Star Trek games were uh, insert quarter, avoid Klingons. <laughs> Not all of his co-workers shunned jobs. He became friends with Ron Wayne, a draftsman at Atari, who had earlier started a company that built slot machines. It subsequently failed, but Jobs became fascinated with the idea that it was possible to start your own company. Ron was an amazing guy, said Jobs. He started companies. I had never met anybody like that. He proposed to Wayne that they go into business together. Jobs said he could borrow $50,000 and they could design and market a slot machine. But Wayne had already been burned in business, so he declined. I said that was the quickest way to lose $50,000, Wayne recalled, but I admired the fact that he had a burning drive to start his own business. One weekend, Jobs was visiting Wayne at his apartment, engaging, as they often did, in philosophical discussions when Wayne said that there was something he needed to tell him. Yeah, I think I know what it is, Jobs replied. I think you like men. Wayne said, yes, it was my first encounter with someone who I knew was gay, Jobs recalled. He planted the right perspective of it for me. Jobs grilled him. When you see a beautiful woman, woman, what do you feel? Wayne replied, it's like when you look at a beautiful horse. You can appreciate it, but you don't want to sleep with it. You appreciate beauty for what it is, Wayne said, that it was a testament to Jobs that he felt like revealing this to him. Nobody at Atari knew, and I could count on my toes and fingers the number of people I told in my whole life, but I guess it just felt right to tell him that he would understand, and it didn't have any effect on our relationship. Um, so he's at Atari, uh, working it up, you know, and then there's India. So he has this idea that he wants to go to India and he talks to his friend Robert from back in college and Robert you know, takes a spiritual journey and he goes to India and he goes to study with uh, one of the gurus. And so Jobs is like, you know, I want to go to India. I want to, you know, quit Atari and go search for a guru in India. And he's telling them and they're like looking at him like he's crazy. Um, but that's what he sets out to do. And we'll pick up on his India trip and what happens next leading up to the foundation and the forming of the Apple company on the next episode of Storytime. So hopefully you guys got inspired and learned a few things about uh, the notorious Steve Jobs today. I'm excited to come back tomorrow. We'll be back tomorrow morning for another episode of Storytime as Steve gets ready to go on his journey to India and go look for his spiritual guru. Um, and it's a, it's definitely a life-changing trip. And all of these things leading up to really the foundation and the formation of Steve Jobs. And when he comes back from India, 
you know, he's enlightened and we'll see where the, where the story goes. So just want to thank you guys again for being here. Um, hopefully you're enjoying and learned a little bit about the young formation of a young Steve Jobs and the impact and influences that mentors can have on you. Uh, people that you come across in your life, whether you call them a mentor, a friend, a wife, a husband, or whatever, you know, you come across whatever, people and the, everyone's going to have some kind of impact on you. And then it's going to be part of your formation and how you uh, take those impacts and take those interactions and what you do with them. That and it happens through your entire life. You know, you're going to always continue to meet people um, and be inspired, be moved, be get people to make you think. And that's what these people did for him. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks for hanging out. Whether you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook, you're listening on podcasts or on the Twitter live broadcast. And uh, hopefully you guys will be back um, tomorrow morning for another episode of Storytime. So have a great rest of your day. Um, Be inspired. uh, Meet somebody new. And you never know how they'll have an impact on you. So thanks for watching, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey guys, Sunny here again. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode and learned some things about Stevie that you may not have known. I remember when I first read this book and I heard some of the these things, I was kind of I wasn't totally surprised because you know to do the things that to pull off what he pulled off, you definitely have to be um, you have to be in touch with yourself, with your creativity. You have to be inside and outside of your mind and. It was pretty cool to, to hear some of these things and how he looked back and thought on those pivotal those pivotal um, experiences that really shaped and um, guided him along the way. So I'm excited to get into the next episode. Um, hopefully, you guys, if you haven't joined live story time on Instagram at SunnyD1.0, you can find me there. On Facebook, you can look for Sunny D, um, where I'm live every every morning during the week um, as we continue to share um, these stories and we'll get into these next phases of what happens next and really the formation of the company he's inspired he wants to start a company but he's got to find his guru uh, first so we'll talk about that and a whole lot more on the next episode so thanks again for tuning in thanks for listening if you're listening to this just podcast version um, i appreciate that and if you would do me a huge solid leave a rating leave a review a five-star review rating send me a screenshot that you did that and I will send you a free YFYI limited edition iHeart t-shirt. That's the deal, folks. Five-star rating, write a review for the podcast, send me a screenshot, and I'm gonna mail you a t-shirt. I think that's a pretty good trade. So hopefully, because that's gonna help the podcast get discovered, and I really wanna get these stories out to as many people as possible. So I'd appreciate it if you would do that. So thanks again for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. All podcasts, future, past, and present are at yfyipodcast.com. So thanks for listening, guys. And remember, this is the place where you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.